good morning, everyone. Feel pretty loud there. <laughs> yeah. um, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 42 through 50. We've got a difficult passage today. It's a warning to the disciples. If you don't have a Bible, as always, we're going to have the words on the screen as I read this aloud for us. So beginning in verse 42, we read, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. That's the word of God. So as I already said, the passage we have here in Mark 9 is a hard passage. Here we find language that I think you'll agree is severe and violent. It warns us of sin's consequences, hell. Now the steady diet here at Redeemer Church for our preaching is that of expository preaching, where we preach through books of the Bible, large passages of Scripture regularly, And we are forced to not skip over the hard passages, passages that some people just don't want to hear. Maybe at times we don't want to hear. This is one of those passages. We can't avoid it. We're talking about hell here. We don't want to cut out the pieces of the Bible we don't like. We want to stand on and believe and love all of God's truth. And we want to be like Paul in Acts 20, verse 27, where he says, We did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so seeking to to preach the whole counsel of God, we get to hard passages like we have today. And now perhaps you have experienced churches in your past where the pastor's sermons week after week regularly were filled with fire and brimstone, as it's known. You never left feeling... uh, built up and encouraged, but you left feeling broken down and discouraged, hurt. Perhaps you were just annoyed by this, put off by it, so you left the church. It it seems like the only method in churches like this at times is to scare you into becoming a Christian. Perhaps you can relate to that. You heard passages like the one today and you thought, oh no, here we go again. Another possibility is that your church that you've had experience with rarely, if ever, talked about hell. When it was, it was more so to teach a lesson instead of teaching an actual physical place. It was metaphorical. It was a metaphorical, figurative hell. There are many today so-called Christian pastors and teachers and authors. If I listed their names, you might recognize some of them who don't believe that hell is a literal place. They might believe that when non-Christians die, they're just annihilated, right? wiped out, 
Their consciousness is ended. Or maybe they suffer some, and then they're annihilated. Kind of the umbrella term for this belief is annihilationism. Okay? So if you're a sinner, you die apart from Christ, you're not going to suffer for all eternity. You might suffer some, and then God's going to wipe you out, or maybe God just wipes you out then and there. All right? So that's annihilationism. Another view is that of universalism, okay? Which teaches that everyone, whether they are in Christ or not, whether they are a Christian or a non-Christian, they're all going to go to heaven when they die. So we have annihilationism, we have universalism, then we have what the Bible teaches. Because I believe that these first two options, they're not viable. They are incompatible with what the Bible teaches. Consider how no one spoke of hell more often than Jesus himself. Did you know that? I think some people kind of think the opposite of that. But of the 12 explicit references to hell in the New Testament, Jesus gave us 11 of them. Faithfulness to Jesus and his word necessitates affirming the eternal conscious torment of those who aren't his upon their death. Our doctrinal statement here at Redeemer Church that all of our members and leaders affirm says the unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. We believe it's a literal, not figurative place. It's a really sad truth. Um, It's hard for us. It's a tough pill to swallow. Now the pendulum can swing from an overemphasis on the wrath of God, the penalty of sin and hell, to a de-emphasis or a flat-out omission. That we live in a time where the spirit of the age tells us, encourages us to avoid topics like this. Avoid hell, avoid God's wrath. We don't want to talk about that. So-called Christian pastors have written books questioning its validity. They think we could win more people to Christ if we made Christianity more palatable by not talking about it, not talking about sin. Stop talking about it, they say. But once you begin doing that by saying that hell isn't important, sin isn't a big deal, you go down this road to eventually wondering, well then, why did Jesus come at all? If I'm already an okay person, I'm a good person, why did Jesus have to come to save me? I don't need a saving. What did his death accomplish? You know, it actually sounds quite barbaric, actually. I can't believe in a God who would abuse his own son on a cross like that. You see how we get there? Have you heard any of this before? Have you thought any of this yourself? Maybe you're thinking it now. When you go down this road, you end up with no Christianity at all. You end up with perhaps an agnosticism dressed up in some Christian language. And when you get to that point, well then, what's even the point of calling yourself a Christian if it doesn't really mean anything? Other religions have pretty similar morals. They have their own version of the golden rule. They have a paradise after death. I mean, come on. just want to try and be a good person. If I give it my best, God's going to take care of the rest, and I'm going to get to go to heaven when I die. Um, why demand that Jesus is the only way? Well, the problem, well, this is the problem with liberal or progressive Christianity. Well, that's what we'll call it. A Christianity that denies the essential beliefs or tenets of our faith. It's a cancer. It kills churches. This is why we have seen since the 1950s a steady decline, actually, in mainline denominations as they have shrunk back from declaring the whole counsel of God and talking about hard truths like hell. What they think is going to make their churches more inviting and accepting is actually killing them. What they think is going to help them grow is actually killing them. 
In 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, we are warned, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Right, the problem also is that our world today is full of people with itching ears. We want to hear about how great we are. We want to go to church and have our pastor tell us how we can get rich, how we can be healthy, how we can be successful, how we can slay the giants in our lives. Don't tell me about sin. Quit mentioning hell. Then those complaints can quickly turn into, stop talking about the cross. It's violent. I don't want to hear about that. I'm not that bad. Remember, I don't need it. The reality is that failing to talk about sin and hell in the name of love can actually be, is actually the most unloving thing you can do to a non-believer or a nominal Christian, someone who claims to be a Christian when they're really not. You see, you de-emphasize hell and sin, you de-emphasize the atonement of Christ. And if you do that, where you get is that you de-emphasize the glory of Christ, the glory of God, if we neglect talking about hell and sin and its consequences. Now, to back up a bit, remember what's taken place in Mark prior to this section. Peter gets rebuked for misunderstanding Jesus' mission, what it means to be the Messiah, that he's going to suffer and die. The disciples are rebuked for their pride, asking questions like, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're also suspicious and critical, sinfully, of others doing great works in Jesus' name. Jesus keeps teaching them over and over again that being a disciple of Jesus looks more like suffering and service than power and position. Just like us today, they were slow to understand what following Jesus actually entails. Jesus has been exposing their sin, and now here he turns up the heat a little bit, no pun intended, by talking about sin's consequences, hell. And the first thing we see here is that if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you must be attacking your sin. Hey, church, we have to attack our sin and pursue purity. The last verse we looked at last week was verse 41, where Jesus says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. We see God's love and compassion for his people here. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, we need to love and serve God's people well. The opposite of this is causing one another to sin. As we look at the beginning of today's passage in verse 42, we see that Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, and we get little ones from the Greek word mikros, which doesn't only refer to children. It's referring to anyone um, with little importance, influence, or power. So while this does include children, it, Jesus is calling all of his disciples, his little ones. So this refers to all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the little ones. Okay. So we need to consider those who we have influence with, who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the command for us to these little ones is not to call, cause them to sin, Another Greek word here. Um, so in my, the version that I read this morning was the, e, the ESV. Maybe yours is the NIV. Um, it translates this word scandalizo as sin. Maybe in yours it translates it as stumble. 
We're called not to call these little ones to sin or stumble. But this word here, scandalizo in the Greek, means to transgress one of God's moral laws, perhaps even commit the sin of unbelief. Jesus wants us to know that the way we can live, that, um, that the way that we can live has an eternal impact on those around us. Do you know that? The way that we live can have an eternal impact on those around us. So we cannot be a stumbling block to them where they're believing in Jesus for their salvation. Instead, we need to help them understand who Jesus is and why he's worthy of our love, our praise, our devotion, why he's worthy of our worship. We need to help others follow him. We must remember that we as Christians represent Christ. Perhaps, sorry, people were looking to the disciples here as, um, as the representatives of Christ. They were looking to these disciples to show them what it looks like to follow Jesus. They were seen as leaders, weren't they? And Jesus wants to make sure that they are doing it well. They're not setting a bad precedent. They're not being bad examples and models for them. Are you doing it well? Are you modeling Christ's likeness for the little ones in your life? Can people look at your life with your priorities and learn true things about Jesus, learn about what God cares about and loves? Or can they look at your life and be misled? Can they look at your life with your priorities and get the wrong idea about Christianity and then be carried off into this wrong idea of it? Can they look at your life and be repulsed by your hypocrisy, be led astray? Or are you flat out encouraging others to sin? Perhaps by not taking sin seriously yourself, you're not going to go encourage someone to go and commit murder or go rob a bank, but maybe there are some other sins that you consider of less importance that you just like to laugh at other Christians who participate in them. Can you see how this can ruin a little one? Perhaps the pride the disciples carried with them that encouraged pride and divisiveness in others called not to take pride lightly. We, have a, we live in a culture that celebrates pride, okay? But we cannot celebrate it, encourage it in others. Consider the sin of taking drunkenness lightly. Okay, that's a, that's a problem in our culture as well. You know it's a sin, but you know that you can do it every now and then because God is forgiving, right? What if you encourage someone to participate in your drunkenness on occasion or just laugh about it, encourage them to take a drink or two more, then they, become, they end up becoming enslaved to it. And it destroys them. Right, we've got to be careful with how we live. What about the new TV show that everybody is raving about on Netflix that you know has scandalous scenes, pornographic scenes in it? You think that you're able to fast forward through those certain parts, but you still think it's okay to recommend it to somebody else. What if they watch it? What if they think, man, he's a Christian. He can watch this. It's okay for me. Maybe, maybe even he's a, a Christian and he watches it. Um, and they become addicted to it. They become addicted to pornography. This something that you just encourage them to watch. They become addicted, enslaved. They become set back in their fight against sin. As Christians, we are called to be pure, morally pure, and we must care about the purity of those around us. We can cause others to stumble in a lot of different ways. Those were just a couple of big ways that jumped to my mind. Every time we misrepresent Christ, we risk doing it. We must, take, must 
must take sin seriously. Jesus gives us this very serious warning, too. Jesus gives us a warning that if we are influencing, causing them to stumble, he says it's better that you die. The wages of sin is death. We know this from Romans. And Jesus says that if you do cause one of these little ones, it's better if a millstone were tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Thus it'd be better for you to bear the penalty of sin yourself than to cause someone else to sin and incur the wrath of God. Isn't that a heartbreaking thought that God thinks it'd be better for you if you were killed in a horrible manner? The illustration Jesus uses here would be a familiar one in this time in history. We don't really use millstones too often. I don't have one in my backyard. But it's a, a millstone is a large stone, round stone, that neither you or I together could lift. It's a large round stone placed on another stone that was pulled by several animals to grind the wheat. And the thought of it being used to pull you to the bottom of the sea, which Jewish people at the time feared, they feared the sea. This would have made the illustration especially terrifying. It was a quick and sudden death, a sure death. We cannot, now, we cannot cause someone to sin in a way that removes them of guilt for this sin, but we do still incur guilt by making sin look enticing to them or making them go against their conscience. Remember Paul's teaching on the weaker and stronger brothers. Right? We must not cause others to sin. Instead, remember God's love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love them, build them up, seek their purity. So again, my question is, who are the little ones in your life and how are you influencing them? And if you want to influence them well for their good and the glory of God, you need to pursue purity in your own life. If you want to be effective in helping others, pursue purity and not fall into sin, pursue purity yourself. Pursue Christ-likeness yourself. And this is Leadership 101, right? Lead by example. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And we're not talking about the sin of the Pharisee, self-righteousness, or the pride in being more righteous than other people, um, being righteous for our own um, gain. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about purity and righteousness for the sake of others. We're talking about love for our brothers and sisters in Christ when we're told to pursue our purity here. So Jesus moves then from warning um, uh, warning us about our sin and causing others to sin to all of our sin in verses 43 through 47. He tells his followers to amputate their hand, their foot, or their eye if they cause them to sin. Now, many men will often re- reference these verses in reference to their fight against lust, which makes sense. You can absolutely and you should apply this verse to that. And But since there's nothing and indicate that this is the exclusive sin that Jesus is referring to here. I take these sayings to represent all of our sin. They represent what you do, where you go, and what you see. Sins caused by your hand, foot, and eye. But let's think again about the sin the disciples commit leading up to this moment, the sin of pride and ambition. Asking questions like, who will be the greatest? And as we saw last week, the disciples betray their pride when they see other people doing great works 
in Jesus' name, yet they disapproved because they weren't following them. They weren't part of their group, their club, their church, their denomination, their fill-in-the-blank. Where we might have pride, selfish ambition, where might we have pride, sinful ambition, and other sin? Even for us who are in Christ, who have been forgiven, purified by the blood of Jesus, right? we have been made pure. We're called to live that out and to pursue it now. We've been made new and given a new heart, and the Holy Spirit, we still have remaining sin in us that we must put to death. So Jesus says to cut off your foot, your hand, cut out your eye. Now this is, of course, hyperbolic language. Hope that you know that. There was a very unfortunate... Uh, church father who took this passage literally, and you can go and look to see what he did to himself. His name's Origen. Um, but the point is, of this passage, to go to great lengths to kill your sin, wage war against it. Don't play around with it. We know Jesus wasn't being literal with this because self-mutilation is sin. He was speaking hyperbolically here. But there are things we might need to actually cut off that are luring us to sin. For a moment, let's consider social media. I'm on social media on numerous platforms. I, I enjoy it. And talking about its, the temptations present on it seem cliche, but I'm going to do it again. Right? Social media culture encourages us to constantly promote ourselves. This doesn't help with pride and sinful ambition, does it? It gives us a lot of opportunities to... Um, to satisfy those cravings. We can share all of our experiences, accomplishments, outrage, and even false information if it proves us right and them wrong. With the new capabilities and platforms we're given on social media, we have such great opportunity to sin, to be prideful, not to mention being anxious and fearful. Some of us just need to cut social media off, maybe for a season? Do we crave what social media has to offer us more than Jesus? Are we using social media for good, which you can totally do, you can, or are you using it for your vanity? If so, perhaps cut it off, maybe for a season, if the temptation for you is too great. So what's so difficult about social media is that we can, that we can constantly access it through our smartphones too, can we? There's even more we can do with our smartphones. A f- several years back, I had a good friend who had become enslaved to pornography, and the primary way he accessed it was through his phone. He had constant access to it. And he was a man who loved God, and he took his fight seriously. So you know what he did? He He got rid of his iPhone, he sold it, and he bought an ancient relic known as the flip phone, right? Y'all know what that is, kids? You can't access the internet the same way. You can't watch videos on it. You can't get on Facebook or YouTube on it. Um, That's what he did in his fight against sin. He knew that it was not wrong to have an iPhone. It's not a sin to have an iPhone, but he knew that it was better to enter the kingdom of God without one than to go to hell with one. God is far more, infinitely more valuable than anything we can experience in this life. And that includes social media, the pleasures it can give us, or 
our iPhones. And so I ask you, what might you need to cut off? Jesus says it's far better to go into heaven without it than to hell with it. Cutting off your hand, foot, or eye won't fix you. Sin comes from the heart, too. What Jesus is calling us for is not mutilation, but mortification, as Sam Storms said. Go to war against your sin. Mortify it. Cutting off your iPhone, eliminating pornography from your life won't stop you from sinning and struggling with lust, but these actions are part of the war. As we pursue purity, they, they eliminate, eliminate unnecessary distractions and opportunities and help us focus on the heart. And through faith in Christ and in prayer and in seeking his will and relying on him for strength, we experience growth in our purity. We, we might bear fruit. That's what we want. We want to be pure so we can bear good fruit for God's glory and the good of ourselves and the good of others. But this passage here, it is a warning. The punishment for our sin, if we do not take it seriously, if we do not pursue purity, we do not, if instead we have sin and bad fruit in our lives and purity, the punishment for it is severe. And it's hell. The Greek word where we get hell here in our text, and you've probably heard this before if you've spent much time in the church, hopefully. Um, we get this word from Gehenna in the Greek. And you might know this, um, but this name comes from the Valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament. And this is a place where wicked kings like Ahaz and Manasseh used to offer child sacrifices. You can read about that in Second Chronicles 28 and 33. It was a horrific place, as you can imagine, where God's chosen people decided to offer their kids as sacrifices. A prophet later on um, calls it the Valley of Slaughter. Okay, Jeremiah called it the Valley of Slaughter. It's also known as the Valley of the Drums because people would beat drums there at the valley so loudly so as to drown out the, the sound of the screams. This was a horrific place. Well, a good king, King Josiah, later on, he came and he changed that and... As part of his reforms, he changed the valley, he changed Gehenna into a garbage dump that was lit on fire, and it became a garbage dump that had a fire consuming it continually, 24-7. And this is what it was used for in Jesus' days. When Jesus says Gehenna, all of this history and the present fire, the unquenchable fire there, that is what came to their mind. What a horrific place in every way. And I believe Jesus wants us to take this in. How horrific hell will be. It is an unquenchable fire. He goes on to say it's a place where the worm does not die. It comes to us from Isaiah 66, 24. When Christ returns to make all things new and destroys all his enemies, the Bible says that those in heaven will one day be aware of of the suffering that's taking place in hell. In verse 24, we read in Isaiah 66, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. I kind of want us to sit in that for a minute. Perhaps you think it's too severe. How could a loving God send his creation 
those who were created in his own image, to endless torment. First of all, how often we bring our own presuppositions and assumptions to the Bible. God couldn't have meant that. Have you ever done that? God couldn't have meant that. That doesn't sound like God. We fail to let the Bible speak to us and inform our beliefs. We, we often come to the Bible with our own beliefs, our mind already made up. First of all, we must realize that those who do perish in hell, they do so by their own choice. They have rejected God, suppressed the truth, chosen to worship the creation rather than their creator. And while we might be tempted to think that our sin against God isn't that great, although it is, consider the one whom we sin against. Infinite, in fact. And we also know that from, you see this in King David, when he, after he was caught in sin against you and you only, have I sinned. All of our sin is against God, the one of infinite worth. Now, pivot for a second. When I was in high school, uh, I drove a 1996, I think that was the year, Honda Civic. It was red. It was a standard. I loved it. It wasn't worth that much. It, I got it used. My older brother drove it for a while. My dad bought it used. It was an old used car. I loved it, though. And I remember when we were in high school, oftentimes students would grab their car keys in the parking lot and they would key the side of cars, the cars they thought they could get away with. And I think they saw my car thought, eh, that's not worth that much. I'll do that. That'll be fine. Maybe they didn't like me. I don't know what the reason was, but I guess they thought they could get away with it. Or even if they didn't get away with it, it wouldn't cost them that much. Imagine the difference between keying my old Honda Civic and keying a new Tesla Model X. Okay, that's a really expensive car. I'm not really a car guy, but from what I'm told, that car costs well over 100000 It's expensive. It's nice. Right, the difference would be pretty extreme. Or, make it more vivid, imagine taking a bat to my old Honda Civic and then taking a bat to the Tesla. All right? One crime, even though it's the same crime, it's different because of the object, the, the worth of the object that I committed that crime against, right? So when we commit a sin, regardless of the sin, all of our sin is against God, one of infinite worth. When you sin against something of infinite worth, what is the penalty? It's infinite. The cost for our sin is infinite. and That means the punishment for our sin is infinite. This is why there is an unquenchable fire awaiting Sinners, and you might be thinking to yourself, okay, I get this. I'm forgiven. I'm a Christian, Brian. Why, why are you talking to me about this? I'm saved. This isn't relevant. Well, this warning is to those who claim to be followers of Jesus. This was not to lost people. This was to the disciples Jesus is telling this to. And it's a warning to us. His warning is that our continual unrepentant behavior can be evidence of a false faith. 1 John 3 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Christians cannot make a practice of sinning. Now, there are going to be some sins we deal with all of our lives, but we're at war against them. We're not giving into them every single time we're tempted. We're fighting them. So I'm not talking about those of you who have had long-term battles with sin, but just long-term willful sinning. I'm going to sin and I don't care. There's a difference. And we need to examine ourselves. Jesus is preaching to his 
followers here. He is warning his followers the dangers of hell. And he doesn't say this either because we can lose our salvation. He's doing this to teach us that if we continue in our sin, it might evidence a lack of sincere saving faith. He is saying, if you are my disciples, you will attack your sin. That's what his followers do. They don't mess around with it. They don't mess around with others' sin. They seek purity in their lives and the little ones that they influence. Now, as we continue to read this passage, though, we see that we are not the only ones who wage war against our sin. And this is awesome. God does too. So look in verse 49. Jesus then transitions from talking about the fire of hell to talking about fire everyone will be salted with. You see that in verse 49. He continues in verse 50. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Where else in the Bible do we see fire and salt together? When we look at the Old Testament, we see that burnt offerings were given salt. We see this in Leviticus 2.13, Ezekiel 43.24, for instance. So it seems as though Jesus is saying the disciples of Jesus are to present themselves as offerings to God. And this is Christian discipleship, laying our lives down, taking up our cross and following Jesus, offering our lives as worship to God. Now, it's important to remember our offering here is not the offering that saves us. The offering of Jesus is the one that saves us, but we do this in response to what he has done for us. Romans 12.1 says, By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your spiritual worship, lives of worship. That's what God desires. That's what God requires of us. So, we see that God purifies us. Now, why does Jesus say, We will be salted with fire. Well, salt has this preservative effect, which Jesus, using this language, would have been picked up on by first century Jewish listeners. And if salt has impurities, it's ineffective. So in order to make us more Christ-like, God purifies us. I take fire here to mean that everyone will experience pain, hardship in this life. And if you are in Christ, don't despair. It's from God. This serves to salt you, to make you more like Christ. The fire here that God might send in our lives causes you to turn away from finding your joy and your delight, your identity in sin, the things of this world, and find them instead in Christ. These hardships help to refine us and purify us and to trust in Jesus more, to love him more, to find him to be all satisfying. Sinclair Ferguson, an old professor of mine, said in his commentary on Mark, says, unless we maintain the purity of our own lives, plucking out the eye, etc., and are purified by the flames of testing and remain faithful to Christ, our lives will have no preserving influence on this corrupt world. Now, Christians, we don't become purified by merely trying harder. By only lopping off what causes us to sin as if the problem is something other than our heart. We become purified by a work of God, which is what we see here in these last few verses. But even, but even the work that we do as we are active in putting our sin to death, that's still God's work that's purifying us. As we say no to our flesh, 
our sinful desires and yes to God, and we see how God then works in us, looking back we say, yet not I, but through Christ in me. You see, this way Jesus gets the glory. He gets all the glory in our lives. Some song lyrics that have been on my mind this week come from Reliant K's song, Trademark Move. They're my favorite band of all time. They say in the song, I'll kill the thing that turns me away. Amputate the arm that will disobey. Withdraw from everything that's hurting me until you finish your work in me. This is a work of God. All of our purification is a work of God. And I want those words to sink in. And I want these words to be true of me, that God is going to finish his work in me. I want to be found to be a genuine Christian. God finishes his work in us as we walk in faith and obedience, and he does this as we behold the glory of God, the one who is worth more than our hand, foot, eye, anything. iPhone, social media, our job, our home, car, anything. God is worth more than that. It's better to enter heaven without it than to go to hell with all of those things. 2 Corinthians 2.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Mark 9.42-50, this passage today, it displays the glory of God in his hatred for sin and the glory of his justice. The glory of his righteousness also displays the glory of his love. How? By pointing us to what he has done in his love to save us from the penalty of hell. As we read these verses, who's caused someone else to sin? I know I have. Who's had sin in their own lives? I know that I have. Well, the penalty for me is death. It's hell. How can I be freed from that? How can I be spared? Have you ever come to a place where you realize that if God had dealt fairly with you, it would mean that you would spend an eternity in Gehenna, in hell, where the fire is unquenched and the worm does not die. God's wrath is never fully exhausted. Christian Jesus exhausted God's wrath for you. John Piper once asked in a sermon, how can one man in a matter of hours drain the cup of God's wrath that would have taken an eternity to pour out on me? How can that be? How can that be, church? It's because God took on flesh to fulfill all righteousness for you. 